0: known fact about my guest today. She grew up in Brownsville, Brooklyn, the capital of crime, and surrounded by a huge, hilarious family that was equal parts joy and trauma. And somehow this girl navigated her way through this really complicated childhood and went all the way from Brooklyn to Manhattan, where she began her life as an artist the first thing she put out into the world was a one-woman autobiographical play called Brownsville Bread. And from that piece of art, that first work has grown so many incredible projects that highlight the Latina experience. A novel, a film, she produces, she directs, she's a casting director, she is a storyteller, and I'm so honored to have her on the podcast today Welcome, Elaine Del Valle. Can't wait to share you with everybody. a Hey, everyone. My guest today is Elaine Del Valle. Elaine is a Puerto Rican multi-hyphenate filmmaker born and raised in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn, New York. As an actress, she starred in her one-woman show, Brownsville Bread, and that project has turned into an award-winning YA novel and most recently had its world premiere now as a film at the 2022 South by Southwest Film Festival. Her passion to bring authentic Latina voices to entertainment is what originally led her to create her autobiographical one-woman stage play, and so much of the other work that she champions as a writer, director, producer, and casting director. I mean, when we say multi-hyphenate, we really mean multi-multi-multi-hyphenate. I am so thrilled to get to talk to you. Welcome, Elaine, to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. What a wonderful introduction. I appreciate it. Such a pleasure to be here.
0: I am in Brooklyn right now as we speak. And um, I feel like the Brooklyn I'm living in right now is probably really different from the area in Brooklyn where you grew up. And when you grew up, Brooklyn has changed so much. And it now is a place that is sort of known around the world, like Brooklyn is a destination, not just for people who can't afford to live in other places, but like tourism in Brooklyn is really way I know, I know that very well. It's so crazy. Um, But the Brooklyn that you grew up in is such a kind of um, character in, in so much of the work of yours that I have had the privilege to see. Can you sort of share what it was like very specifically in the Brownsville of your childhood.
1: You know, I grew up in the uh, 1970s and 80s and 90s um, in in Brownsville. And it was then the crime capital of New York. I I believe it still is the murder capital, crime capital. It's a predominantly African-American neighborhood. um, And there's about one square mile of it with over eighty thousand people living in it and um because those projects and and the surrounding projects i lived in the langston use projects so because those projects and the surrounding projects were made section eight housing which was just basically everybody on welfare um it's it's a little harder to gentrify there than it has been everywhere else
0: so The Langston Hughes projects, how many buildings is that?
1: So Langston Hughes is comprised of three buildings, each have 22 stories and eight apartments per floor. So there were about 3000 people living on my block.
0: (laughs) So how did your family, how did you and your family end up in those buildings? Is it generational? Did you guys move in sort of at a certain point in your childhood? How did you end up there?
1: Actually, it's a great story. Um, and i and I learned it late in life. So, my grandmother had um, nine girls and two boys, and all from the same husband. And she was a very abused woman. She was physically and mentally abused and um, and raising those children, she was always very afraid of her of her husband. and my mother was also beaten, all of the children were beaten except for two, um, the two that were um, disabled or however you wanna call it today, <laughs> but in their eyes, back then it was that. Um, and so my grandmother, they lived on the Lower East Side of Manhattan originally, and she let him beat her all those years and and the kids were beaten all the time and and then she caught him with another woman in his car. And that's when she left him. And she said, I'm going to Brownsville to these buildings because I know that you'll be too afraid to follow me there. And he never followed her there. And then uh, my mom was, all of the children were pretty much out of the house as soon as possible. Um, Marrying early, having children early, and, um, and my mom wound up in the same projects and my grandmother lived on the sixth floor and, and we lived on the 12th. So, so I was the, I was the youngest of the, of the family. So wow. I just know from, you know, what I hear, what I have right. heard.
0: Wow. That is a tough, tough story. And you know, the- it's a
1: tough story, but I have yeah. to say like all the family parties with all my aunts and uncles all they ever did was laugh about it. who was beaten harder? remember that time when such and such remember when grandma tried to commit suicide but then she was held on from the from her bra straps on the uh, rail on the you know those guard rails on the window. so she apparently tried to commit suicide, jumped out of the window and her bra got cut got caught in the rails. <laughs> so- and I'm laughing because this is all I've ever heard my entire life is laughing around this. And I guess this is, this is the personality of my family. They just laugh about things and joke. So and humor
0: as a coping mechanism absolutely. and humor as a survival tactic. And also like how great that you guys could all come together and sort of celebrate um, the survival aspect of it, rather than the loss and the pain aspect of it. Did you guys, were you, was there a place to sort of talk about like, okay, wait, what? Grandma tried to, or was there never sort of that kind of conversation growing up?
1: No, that was never a conversation. It was all during holidays when we were all together, laughing, telling stories, when they would get together and tell stories. And it was really I mean, they were cracking up and they were reenacting it, um, you know, walking like them and sort of doing their own one-person show. And uh, oh
0: and I goodness. just used
1: to watch it. And I guess that's just how I
0: grew up. Yeah. So when you were growing up, I mean, obviously when your grandmother describes or or this story is she knew if she moved there, her ex would be too scared to come because that's sort of the intensity of that neighborhood um, when you described it as like the number one crime capital of of New York, maybe the world, who knows. Um, Were you scared growing up? Were you aware of sort of the the violence and what was going on around you or were you more protected?
1: I was definitely aware, Mm -hmm. but when you live there, that's just where you grew up. You're not really, I mean, you know what to be careful of. Like I'll never forget that time I was eight years old. My mom and I had gone shopping um we just came back from a grocery store and when you live there you know everyone there no matter how many people there are you just have seen every face because we're all waiting for the elevators at one point or another and you just know everyone and when you see someone who is a stranger it's an immediate response so i remember at 8 years old um there was a stranger waiting for the elevator in the lobby with just me and my mom and we got into the elevator and my mom and I, even at eight, sensed the, the danger. Now he could have come to just visit someone, but we just sensed the danger because he was a stranger. And my mom, as a, as a, um, as a method of, of counteracting the danger, she would press another floor. So she pressed another floor to make sure that that person was not going to press the same floor. And he didn't, he didn't press the same floor. He pressed the lower floor. And then he was getting off of the elevator and we were like, Oh, so thank goodness. <laughs> like, that's what I was thinking. I know. And then before the elevator door closed, sure enough, he just forced it open, held us at gunpoint and said, your money or your life. And, um, and that was something that happened at eight. I ha- I write about it in my play and, um, and I reenacted in my play. And then afterward, it turns into, at the end of the scene, everyone's laughing from it from the way that my mom handled it. And, you know, how she, how she made fun of him for not having taken her change in her back pocket. And she was so happy. And then, you know, in the one-woman show, I actually become the character. And she's like, "I pero que he's so stupid. And the whole audience burst out in laughter and happiness. Um, because my mom always found a silver lining, a better way of looking at things. Like, at least we still have our food and look, he didn't take this. Look how dumb he was and we're not hurt and we're okay. And he's the one running. And, um, I guess that's how I learned to, to deal with
0: things. And in terms of, you know, I, I don't want to your, your, show, the book, the movie, all of these kind of ways in which you've been able to reinvent the story and, and and change it for the medium with which it's being presented. They're not carving copies of each other, which Absolutely is a really not. incredible thing, obviously inspired by your life, but you really have found a way to weave the story completely appropriately for the different ways in which you're, you're telling it, the platforms that you're telling it. Um, in, in it, we also learn the story of your dad, who, who, like all young girls, you loved desperately, and he's the hero in so much of the earlier years of your life. Um, can you share a little bit about when what was going on for him became, uh, you know, was revealed to you, and how old you were, and sort of what happened? So
1: thank you for mentioning earlier how I Managed to adapt the script as needed for whatever medium it was, or the story, I should say. Yeah. Um, because every, everything requires something different. And, and for the feature film, um, I definitely took dramatic license. I followed the action. Uh, most everything is true, uh, everything is based on truth. Um, and so I think the earliest signs were when my grandmother, who is my grandmother, was pretty cruel. Um, she was emotionally abusive and, um, and she started saying things like that he stole from her and he never even went to her. He hard. I mean, I don't remember one time that he went to her apartment except for at parties. And so I remember my mom being very upset at that fact that she was claiming that. And so that was the first time that I really thought what's going on here and um, very early on in my childhood some of my favorite memories of all time was every two weeks my dad was a janitor at a public school and every two weeks he would get paid on Thursdays and way back when we used to go to a restaurant and we we would drive to like um TSS, there was a place called Times Square Stores on Linden Boulevard, and we would drive and go to a Chinese food restaurant, and it was the best, it was like the best thing of my entire life, going to a restaurant, and that was really short-lived, because um, after a while, we didn't have enough for that, and so I guess that was the earliest signs for me, looking back, and yeah, I, th- I think those were the earliest signs, but meaning you know, where
0: the paycheck was no longer available,
1: to right? To have was, this
0: celebratory dinner together because it was going to drugs in retrospect, right? Is, is right, what right, was happening, and,
1: and even like, um, you know, in the film, I don't want to give away too much, I know, I know. <laughs> but in the film, you know, we I use one particular item as something that he takes from the school. But uh, when I was growing up, everything in my house was property of the board of education that was the pencils the sharpeners the, and we had the industrial sharpener and the you had the, the doe
0: swag it was just different swag from <laughs> the yes school,
1: right yes yes so I, I think that was definitely something and then one one christmas i remember we got um the gray clay the gray block. you know like the block clay that you only get at the school so like that was our christmas
0: gift that year right and it was heroin.
1: Yes, it was heroin, yeah. And well, the gray you, block of clay was not heroin. No, gray, no, but- The gray but, block uh, of clay was just Play-Doh. <laughs> it was
0: clay, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but somehow your father ended up going down that road. And do you do you know sort of how that became something that sort of, because your father, was he like in the film? a musical person and a lover of music and salsa and just love to sing and all of that. Is that true?
1: Yes, he was absolutely joyful and uh, he loved music. I, I mean, to an extreme, music was his life. He came from Puerto Rico wanting to become a salsa musician and it's actually, you know, going to the bars at night, trying to play gigs and stuff like that. Uh, what got him falling into the habits and then it just went too far. But he was um, an amazingly talented person in every sense of the word. Um, He would just pick things up immediately and be good at them. He was terrific at sports. He uh, He played every instrument by ear, piano, guitar, trumpet, gonga. And he sang like a dream. But um, I remember growing up, we had um, the, just the, the, the entire wall was lined with milk crates filled with salsa records. And uh, he would just play them Every moment that he was home, it was on in my house. And it was like, it used to drive me crazy because, you know, growing up in Brownsville, I just wanted to be like a part of my community. And for me, that was rap music. Yes, all
0: the great rap stars that came out of that neighborhood. So that's going on while you're growing up. But in your house, the culture was... Now, that, as you described earlier, like that was a pretty predominantly African-American area. And so, you as a Latina woman were definitely in the minority. Yes, you could say that again. Yeah. Which <laughs> there is were awful. a handful of Puerto Rican
1: families. Oh, well, not just Puerto Rican, Puerto Rican, Dominican. Yeah. Um, yeah, but mostly Puerto Rican families.
0: So, your father leaves the family at a certain point?
1: Yes, he actually went to Puerto Rico when we realized that, uh, when he and my mom realized that he needed some something else he couldn't be there anymore um and so we he went to puerto rico and he did rehabilitate so um that'll come later on in the story if you read Mm -hmm. the novel you'll see it yeah but definitely um what we premiere at south by southwest on march 13th um is the first act of my feature film and it's written in four acts and so um hoping to resume filming later on this year. And and I know that I will with a grant from Warner Media, an additional grant from Warner Media 150, and uh, hopefully some backers that I will attract by being at South
0: by Southwest. Absolutely. And what's really amazing, I mean, just knowing a little bit about the story. So your, your father died of AIDS. Is that Correct. yes i just want to yes. make sure that i understood it correctly and i think what's sort of incredible is you know javier Muniz, who is the star of your movie who has you know such unbelievable um love certainly from the Broadway community and beyond for his gorgeous work in Hamilton. Um, The role he shared with Lin-Manuel Miranda for a long time and then took over um, has been very public about his own HIV. And I just thought like how beautiful and incredible to have someone like him at the center of this film who understands it so deeply on so many different levels.
1: Yes, I mean, not just that. And I know that's that's such a big thing. but not just that, it's his musical ability and yeah. the fact and that he's Puerto Rican yeah. and that he's from East New York. We incredible. grew up minutes away from one another. But didn't know each other growing no, up. No, no, no. The coincidences just keep on going. And yeah. and he looks just like my dad.
0: So It's kind of incredible. It really is incredible. And well, I'm so he's lucky so to he's beautiful in him. the movie. And the little girl who plays, I mean, the, the character's name is Elaine in the film. I mean, that's how immediate this, this um, experiences for the viewer, knowing who wrote it and who directed it and who produced it. And this little girl that you have at the center um, just is just this perfect young actress. Like you can't believe it. And when she starts out, I mean, it sort of has this Spike Lee vibe at the beginning. It's just so, it's so good, Elaine. And I want to talk you. about, um, because you're, I, I don't think people realize when you grow up in the projects as they're called in the US. I don't know what they're called in other places, but it's a very specific vibe. People understand what you mean, um, whether they've lived there or driven through it. There's a sense of what it is to grow up in the projects. And so many of the global rap stars, like these Brownsville guys who have, and, and women who have made it in, in such a huge way have really been able to share globally what it is through their music and their, and their words to grow up in a place like that and to get, maybe not get out of a place like that, although it does feel like a lot of people yearn to get beyond the, the, the three buildings that you're describing and to kind of have access. You know, Manhattan is not far, but for so many people who grew up in Brownsville, it's another planet. In terms yes. of you know, there's the proximity, but not the access in the same way. Um, somehow, you ended up in Win Handman's acting class in Carnegie Hall in New York City from that elementary school that you describe across the street from you, right? And you're living in like a five block radius. Your whole life is in this one place. So, how do you get from there? to like, like, when does, I mean, your dad was musical, you're, there's so much art and music in your house when you're little, but yeah. how do you get this acting bug? Not just like a fun little, like, oh, wouldn't it be cute yeah. to do you know, a, a little show in school, but like to in earnest pursue it as, as um, an adult? Well,
1: first, let me tell
0: you as a child,
1: um, I actually had the lead in the school play at PS 284 where I went to school. Okay. And that, in that time, was the first time in my life that I ever felt that I actually made a difference and mattered. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they say everything goes back to that, you know, that first spark. Those
0: moments, yeah. Yes,
1: and I remember, so we had never done, the school had never done one of these big school productions like is so normal to do in every other school. And that's because normally you have to buy the rights and then it takes a while and then it's rehearsal at night. None of that stuff is, at least back then, I don't know if it is now, but at least back then it wasn't even possible. Like who's going to bring their kid at night for rehearsal? You can't stay after the teachers don't want to stay after. So um, it was the, sixth grade top class which was six one the top class um, that they allowed to make this play and they took um, the afternoons off of of the um, last six months of school just to rehearse and my uh, it was the gym teacher that was committed to doing it because we didn't have a theater teacher (laughs) it was my gym teacher Mr. Serber and um, I got the lead to play Sandy in Greece and he he didn't let us move past any scene until everybody got it right, every single word. So with that, the frustration grew, it intensified daily, he would get so upset, everybody would be so upset and disappointed on the person that messed up their line. And so it took us Months to get to this one scene where it was just basically somebody saying like one thing to me, leaving stage, and then I had this monologue and then I would sing. And that was the first time that we were able to move forward in like that. And everyone was so happy, and the teacher was so happy, and I was so happy, and he was so proud that he called the principal down to see everything the next day. And, um, and so that was really the first time that I, that I felt like I did something that really made a difference to everyone. And so I think that that really stood with me. And growing up, you know, as I got older, right, I didn't know that it was even possible. And right. I started, I, I started um, belonging to this thing called the Hispanic Organization for Latino Actors. And
0: how did I we met- find out about that? Like, how do you I, even I, know about it?
1: You know, it's not even like it's online or anything. I'm trying yeah. to remember now. Yeah. How, oh, I know. There was um, backstage. There okay. was a newspaper for actors called Back. It's still around. And is this oh. high
0: school or like post high school? Is this so This fast is forward post, years later? Yeah, fast
1: forward years okay. later, yes. Okay, yes. And um, so I look at this thing. Somehow I get to the Hispanic organization for Latino actors. I learn from someone, like, just get a picture. And then this girl said to me, You'll do very well in commercials because you speak Spanish and you're exactly what they're looking for in commercials. And so she said, Just get a headshot and write a postcard or mail your headshot to all the agents and see if they get. If they pick you up. There was a book called The Ross Report. You would just buy it on a news at a newsstand.
0: Oh, I know. All the vanilla envelopes I filled (laughs) send to like the soap opera casting people and the agents and all of that. Yes, yes, yes. 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 Been there. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so the fact that I spoke Spanish, I just sent them cards and like every major agent in New York responded. Wow. And I immediately started getting seen. As a matter of fact, on the day that I went to the office of CESD, back then it was CED, I booked something. I, I, I went there for a meeting. And when I left, they beeped me. Back then it was only beepers. And I called on the payphone. And I said, hey, I just left there. Did I leave something there? And they said, no, we were having an in-house casting. And the, the whoever was the producer's, were there and they saw you and the casting was over and they said where's that girl that we saw in the waiting room and they called me back upstairs and I booked it and that was the first thing that I ever booked so you started in commercials yes and I did commercials for a very long time and it was very lucrative for me and uh but but then it became very um so that same girl, funny enough, the same girl who told me, get a headshot, send it out. Um, she, she used to talk about the fact that she studied with Wynne Hanman, like it was like this big aura around it. And I was like, right. oh no, I'll never be there. Yeah, yeah. Um, But then I decided one day that I was going to try and I set up a meeting and I did a monologue and I was awful, absolutely terrible. And, um, but he liked the monologue and I had written it. It was from something that I had written earlier on. I was, I was just writing a lot. You know, I wrote when I was a kid, I wanted to be a rap star. I thought I was going to be a rapper. Don't ask me to rap now because (laughs) I don't know. But I I had, back then I had composition notebooks filled with the best raps. And I used to write poetry and win poetry contests. It was, I loved writing and so it was always just something that I did. So I, I wrote this thing and I, and I brought it in to win and he liked the writing on it and I told him why I wrote and he said you'll work hard and, I, and you, you can't do any of your work. He said you cannot write what you're going to be performing. I'm going to assign you. And so I studied with him for three years, and once I was studying with him, I understood what she, you know, was so proud of because the work was so intensive, and everybody in the class was so talented. I learned as much from watching them work and and when direct them into you know whatever the scene uh, blossomed into than I did you know doing the work myself. I really and I really really enjoyed it, and we became just this the synergistic group that was always rooting for one another and, and wanting to do more and wanting to get ahead. And we were putting in all the work because it was twice a week. And then we had to rehearse in between. Right. And, um, I'll tell you when, Wynn took hiatus, which he did every summer, we were all like, what do we do now? <laughs> and so that's when, uh, I, I, I started a writer's group in my apartment. I lived in Manhattan at the time. And I started a writer's group there. And that's where I started developing Brownsville Bread. And I was just just basically writing my childhood stories because I thought that they were really interesting. But more than that, I felt so misunderstood by the entertainment industry. I was only getting these parts for commercials. I wasn't even allowed to audition for anything other than like soap operas or anything that seemed glamorous. And I was the opposite of glamorous. Although physically I felt glamorous to camera and, and perhaps I still do today, but um, inside my heart, my head, everything, I, I I felt like I wasn't being true to who I was at my core. And so writing Brownsville was amazing. I didn't understand how it would be a universal story, but somehow it is. And, and audiences have let me know that in no uncertain terms. So, um, and so, yeah, and then, and then just writing was so the power of it, the power of not waiting for someone else to give me a job is what really, you know, opened up the floodgates. I was being successful and not needing anyone else to accomplish that because this job of acting is so Determined by how others view you and if they want you. And so actors are always in a place of wanting. And so uh, doing Brownsville Bread really had me outside of that space. And then I just wanted to do more. And then I wrote a web series and I wanted, and then I produced it. And out of default, I had to direct it because no one else wanted to. Mm -hmm. And one day I I asked this, it was my last ditch effort. I asked someone that I had done an internship with the New York Women in Film and Television years earlier to direct it. And she said, tell me about it, Elaine. And I told her and she said, it's clear to me that you are the director. Mm. And then boom, a light bulb popped in my head and I did it and I was so happy with the outcome i I, it was a lot better than i thought that it would be than, than i thought it would be and i just loved doing it i loved directing the actors i loved watching that great performance and getting a little bit more out of them and 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 even the hardest thing was directing myself so um when i always saved my scenes for last and everyone else's coverage first and uh And then like, I didn't care. I was just like, okay, whatever. Just, you know, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So, and uh, I still feel that way if I'm directing when I'm acting. But for the most part now, I love directing so much that I just want to focus on the work and being on monitor, I need to be on monitor. And so uh, being on monitor really prevents me from being in front of the camera as much as I would like to when I'm directing as well. Well, I have to say that my family, my, my siblings, uh, now I have two sisters growing up. I only had one, um, and, and my two brothers and my mom are my biggest fans. They are, they just love me so much and I love them so much. And really doesn't matter what we do, whatever we're doing is awesome.
0: <laughs> you know, is and- your mom still in proud? Is she still living in the projects?
1: No, no, my mom lives in um she lives in on Long Island now. And my sister lives. No one is still living there. Right. No one lives there. Even my grandmother moved to Philadelphia. Okay. Which was hard to believe. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. So they've all been supportive. Did you really um start supporting yourself through commercials pretty quickly?
1: Well, I have to say yes. That I was in. I mean, you name it, I was on it. <laughs> Easy off Burger King, Miller Lite, Bur- uh, Bud Light. Of course, not at the same time. Yeah, uh, yes. Ford competing um, brands, right? Um, I, right. You couldn't. You can't do competing brands. Right. With Sag, um, but you can after they run off, and then here here was the big moment uh, also i have to say let's not skip the fact that i was doing a lot of extra work
0: you know i was just okay. i was doing
1: a lot of extra work okay. and i was upgraded a few times and it was just i was always very professional always on my A game always like whatever it needs you know i'll just go there I'll whatever whatever wardrobe you know whatever hours don't complain don't talk too much just do your job stay steady and i wanted to make my health insurance and then in between that i do commercials and and then i started booking those commercials all the time so i didn't need to do background work anymore And then I booked Dora the Explorer, which is an animated series for Nickelodeon, which ended up going to CBS as well. And I booked a series regular. And once I booked that job, I quit my day job. I still benefit from that experience and the relationships that I've acquired through the years. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier that I work in casting as well. My company is a production and casting company. And I was recommended to be the casting director for a new animated series uh, for PBS Kids by someone that I had worked with on Dora the Explorer. Right. The voice director of Dora the Explorer knew that I was casting and she thought that I was the perfect person to cast this new series called Alma's Way for PBS Kids and Fred Rogers Productions. Wow. So. And that's how I got that job. And and I've been casting it ever since. Yes, yes. Oh,
0: wow. It is really inspiring and incredible to me to see you really figure out what your joy is, what your passion is, and to be so generous in sharing it and give opportunities to so, you know, producing, not just directing, acting, writing, and all the things you do, producing is giving people opportunities right? At the end of the day, here's an opportunity for you to be amazing. What do you need to be amazing, right? And everyone I speak to, everything I read about you, is that you keep creating in so many projects that you do, so many opportunities. And then in your free time, you're like out there talking in community centers and going very micro into different worlds to talk to young people, and help them fulfill their dreams. And Elaine, I just feel like how lucky we are to have you, right? Like to have you on the planet, making this beautiful work and... You're making me blush. I know. Well, (laughs) well. luckily we're recording it so people can see you blush, not just (laughs) hear it. Um, Before I let you go, you have to promise to come back because there's going to be more TV shows and movies and so many projects over the years. And I hope that we can keep in touch and keep promoting them so people can go see them and know about them. Um, Even though you've been so generous already, is there a little known fact about you that you can share with my listeners
1: um I was a teenage mom. <laughs> um I had my daughter when I was 19 and now I have a 31-year-old daughter and she's she's she actually works in a um, in Brownsville. Uh she writes grants to build self-sustaining food systems for the neighborhood and she's the one who actually invites me back into Brownsville to to talk about um, coming up out of Brownsville and, and really try to enforce the, or, or really try to let people know that their stories matter no, matter no matter what, no matter what their stories matter. And all of our stories are universal. It's, it's the, you know, you have to just find that universal thread. In Brownsville Bread, it's nurture versus nature. Which one is it? Who are you? And you need to know these things in order to self actualize and accept them. Right. So, um, so those are the things. I
0: think that's a little known
1: fact. Um, I
0: think that's fantastic. And. I hope that you can do a screening of the movie in Brownsville for your well, community.
1: Already the school, I shot in my school to PS oh 284. God. I actually filmed there. So the principal is like, when can we have you over? When can we screen the film? And, uh, and my daughter's the same thing. I have a lot of important people coming. They want to see the film. And I said, hold on, hold on, because, well, you, you know, let there. it, let it do yeah. this, let it do the circuit. Yeah. And then uh, further to that, I just, you know, Know, I, I really want to just finish the whole thing get picked up by someone and and just finish because what we did was just the first act of what I hope to be the entire feature film or even a limited series um, and I hope that these this gives people the taste and and let them invest in you know independent filmmakers yeah. and, and Latina directors and female directors and uh, and and let everybody know that everybody's story matters because everyone's does.
0: So what is your website where people can kind of find out more and keep track of all of the progress with all of the things that you're doing?
1: Well, let me just say, you can definitely follow me on Instagram for the latest and greatest (laughs) at Elaine Del Valle, director, and definitely follow Brownsville Bread. That's B-R-E-D as in born and bread, not the bread, not the bread that you eat. And, um, And that's really the latest and greatest. And then there you can just link tree everything. You can see all the articles, my personal director website, my reels, my reels as an actor. All of those things are available.
0: All right. Well, we will, we will be stalking you on all of those platforms. Elaine, thank you for being on the podcast today. What a joy to have you here.
1: Thank you so very much. It was wonderful being with you and what an incredible soothing voice you have. Thank you for making me feel so comfortable. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure.
0: One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out, and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are Little Known Facts that now You know! This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa, with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.